Hey, before we begin, I want to let you know about a new show from Curious Cast that I think you might be into. It's called Russia Rising. Putin's Russia has been accused of using internet trolls, hackers, and even assassins to influence the West. This new investigative podcast hopes to unravel the giant mystery that is Russia with the help of those who know her best. Russian trolls, hackers, Putin supporters, and even a former KGB spy. Join Global News Europe Bureau Chief Jeff Semple on a journey to find out how Russia has gone from tenuous ally to a potential global threat. Listen to Russia Rising for free at CuriousCast.ca or wherever you're enjoying This Is Why. Now, in the future, could it happen that robots maybe take on some of the things that are being done, such as uh, receptionist work or administrative work? Yes and no. In 20 years from now, your job could look a whole heck of a lot different than it does right now. I'm Nikki Reitmeyer, and this is Why. Meet the Buddhist robot priest, ready for hire. This funeral robot can step in to chant prayers when a priest is not available. And this robot is preparing chemotherapy for patients. Healthcare of the future is now a reality. You can never do this with conventional surgery. Robots are convenient. They don't need wages or sleep, which makes them attractive for businesses. Some blue-collar, repetitive task labor jobs are, are going to go. The medical robotics market is expected to soar in value from $5 billion to $29 billion in the next six years. While some may worry that our automated friends will leave humans without a job, the potential upsides are many. Whether it's to take care of our children or look after our elderly loved ones, robots are here to stay. In 10, 20, or 30 years from now, what will your job look like? Automation is becoming more common in countries like China, where the use of robots is becoming more prevalent. So what does the future hold for factory workers, farm workers, postal workers? You know, sci-fi shows have even shown us a future where both white and blue-collar jobs can be done robotically. To find out more about what the future of Canada's workforce may be, I called up Cheryl Cran on Skype. Hello, Cheryl speaking. Hi, Cheryl. It's Nikki calling. How are you? She's written a new book on the future of work. Cloud computing, AI automation, robotics, all of that is moving things rapidly in the workforce of how things, how work's getting done, who's going to do what, uh, who's best to do the work. Is it a machine or is it human? What's going to get the work done in a way that's going to increase productivity for the organization, but also benefit human beings? The other piece is people. And in people, there's probably a, a number of challenges. Number one, demographic challenges. Uh, a lot of the Zoomers, which is what a, I call a baby, a Zoomer is a baby boomer who refuses to age. So there's the, the Zoomer who has been in the workforce for many, many years is now saying, you know, uh, technology is allowing me to maybe not have to do the mundane things. I can get the work done. But then add to that that the millennials and the Gen Zs are quickly changing attitudes around work, where they work, how they work. Uh, they'd rather do project work. They'd rather freelance. They'd rather work in, in uh, changing work teams. Those are the biggest things that are affecting business today. And and if businesses aren't on top of it, it does affect the future of the business, of course, which is what my whole book is about. 
Now, of course, I, I think it's hard to have this discussion unless we're talking about, you know, this this idea that robots are going to be stealing our jobs. Um, if if people move in a direction where they're not interested in taking certain jobs anymore, will those be the jobs that are most likely candidates for becoming automated? Or are we going to start to see more and more jobs being automated, whether or not we want them to be? It's a great question. Um, so the research is pointing to uh, option A that you mentioned, which is so far automation and robotics is taking care of the things that we can't get humans to do anymore anyway. So for example, in the farming communities, uh, you know, picking crops, there's robotic tractors now that are doing that. It's hard labor work for humans. It's it's hard on their bodies. It's hard, you know, orchards are, are having technology that picks the crops as well. Um, manufacturing, a lot of robotics being used to, to lift heavy parcels, to do the the mechanics of the job, uh, even ditch digging, you know, we would call it robotics, all the things that humans, and, and when I spoke earlier about millennials and Gen Zs, the younger generations are not interested in hard, difficult manual labor. They're interested in changing the world, making the world a better place, and using work that is meaningful and purposeful to get that done. So, so far, the research is pointing to, no, the robots aren't taking over the world. No, they're not going to take everyday jobs. They're going to take on the things that we can't find people to do right now. That's what's happening right now. Now, in the future, could it happen that robots maybe take on some of the things that are being done, such as uh, receptionist work or administrative work? Yes and no, because we'll still need human intelligence for context. So the nature of work is going to change. But robots are not replacing humans in the world of work. It seems like, though, the first jobs that start to go, if they're the less desirable jobs, are also the jobs that we find more at-risk people doing, more vulnerable people, lower-income people doing. So are robotics and changing technologies threatening the lower class more than they are the upper class? Uh, I think that's an important point. Uh, Yes and no, and that's why many uh, communities are now getting education and and corporate to partner to help reskill and upskill those at-risk employees. But yes, you're right, those jobs that are currently being done uh, by those lower income workers or those those entry style workers are going to change, but that doesn't mean they'll be out of work. And one of the the premises that I talk about for the future of work is that, regardless of where we are on the spectrum of work, everybody needs to be upskilling, reskilling, and preparing for this uh, new work reality. Where, by the way, those the, that sector that you point to is also a high injury sector high sick rate sector. So there's got to be better work for them to be doing and to sharing their talents. That requires reskilling, upskilling and education. And that's where a lot of organizations are now looking to education to help build that so that we're not left with a situation where people are out of work because they've stayed doing those jobs that are now going to be done by machines, if you will, or robots. I wonder, too, what this means for the future of handmade products or, you know, people who are masters in some sort of craft. I wonder what the increase in robotics will mean for those types of old trades where someone's making something by hand and there's a quality that we value in that. 
So that's not going to go away. In fact, what's happening is that there's actually a, a desire and a longing for that. You know, I, I don't I don't see it as an either or. What I see is automation and technologies infiltrating big business, the way that we do some things. For example, you know, I use mobile app for Starbucks. I love that service. Making our lives a better reality is what the purpose of technological innovation is and what it, where it should be directed. And it should be a people first focus. In regards to your comment about artisans and artmanship, there's actually, um, you know, as technology increases, there's an increasing desire for us to be more human, for people to be in nature more often, to not be around our devices as often as we have been, uh, to really appreciate handmade items. For example, uh, if you look at Instagram, the rise of knitting, hand-knit items for people, uh, that's increased with the increase of technology. Artwork and, and having human artwork has increased the desire for that. Although I will tell you that there are robots robots making art. I don't know if you saw this. It's, it's been featured on futurism.com and World Economic Forum. And they are able to duplicate the efforts of some of the best artists in the world. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to be turning to machines for art. We're increasing the need for human. See, I believe human creativity and what we're going to be doing. We don't even know what the jobs are going to be yet because that's how fast change is is happening. But I also believe that human creativity will be increased because we'll have freed up time of not doing those mundane, repetitive tasks or jobs that have kept everybody occupied in the industrial age post-war. So it's a real revolution, renaissance, I believe. And, and I do believe the increase in demand for art and human uh, artisan is going to increase because I think technology lends itself to that. We want more of that human. What's the human creating? A new hub for robotics innovation in Canada will be in Montreal. In late January, a new AI campus officially opened there. Out in the Montreal warehouse district of Mile X, big ideas are being tossed around a brand new campus called Mila. It is one of three artificial intelligence campuses in Canada. The rest of the world is now investing massively in this because it's transforming society. It's becoming the tool for a new industrial revolution. The campus is 90,000 square feet and has more than 35 professors and 300 researchers with 13 corporate labs and 10 student startups. Healthcare is one example where AI can really add tremendous benefits to helping to diagnose diseases, helping us to find treatments and helping us to monitor the effects of those treatments. Some of these notions may only exist on paper now, but these scientists believe they'll end up having applications that no one's even thought of yet. Billy Shields, Global News, Montreal. Coming up later in this episode, we're going to shift gears and hear from former CFL player Angus Reid. Despite so much news around concussions in football, he says more high school kids should enroll in the sport. You're listening to This Is Why, a national radio show and podcast from Global News. Download and subscribe online now. In recent years, there's been a lot of talk around the risk of concussions in sports. Awareness has increased in hockey, rugby, soccer, even curling. She's not yet completed high school, but already Katrina McFadden has experienced the trauma of a concussion. 
twice. Junior hockey player Matthew Checky was forced to hang up his skates for good after being hit from behind in his first game. It was concussion number five and the final straw for the 19-year-old. The number of concussions retired Stampeder Jeff Pilon has suffered is in the double digits. In less than a week, the 17-year-old suffered three head injuries. The last hit so severe, she went unconscious. The swelling in her brain was uh, so rapid and so severe, she passed away uh, five days later. Conversations around concussions have changed. Like other sports, curling has evolved over the years, with equipment and rule changes leading the way. To me, a suggestion to wear a helmet is pretty common sense. But most of that news began with a focus on the sport of football. Angus Reid is a former CFL offensive lineman. He's won two Grey Cups playing in the CFL. And recently, he spoke with radio show host and friend of this podcast, John McComb at CKNW, about why parents should no longer fear enrolling their kids in high school football. Angus rejoins me in the studio. Nice to see you. Oh, good to see you, John. Thanks for having me back. The thing that struck me about your story um, is that you were a, a kid who really had no business playing football. I mean, you you weren't the best athlete. You, but because you had good coaching, because you had um, motivation, because you had people behind you who were teaching you and showing you obviously put together a tremendous career. Yeah, and that's why I speak a lot because I always laugh. It'd be one thing for me to try to inspire and motivate others if I was some you know, insanely gifted freak athlete that had abilities that no one else could have, it's, it's pretty hard for the average person to relate to. Yeah. You know, when I'm trying to say you can do it too and they say, well, I'm not seven feet tall like you are. I'm, I'm relatively, athletically speaking, I'm just a normal person. I think the one gift I had was the ability to... Uh, have abnormal dreams to, to, to think big and not be scared. And then I was very fortunate to be surrounded by, by a good, strong family that yeah. that's very supportive. And then really fortunate to, to have the, to, to run into good coaching and, and then be smart enough to, to grab onto that and, and to listen and, and, be, and just do what they instructed me to do and, and give my all to what I wanted to do. And good things happen. And, and there's, there's something to be said for, you know, finding good mentors or, or first off, Finding an outlet that, that brings you some joy, committing to it all in, and finding the right kind of coaches, teachers, and mentors, and surrounding yourself with the best people you can find, and just committing to doing it every single day with everything you have, and good things happen. And it's, it's shocking what you can accomplish, and I think that's my big story, that if I can do this, if I can play 13 years in an elite sport, usually reserved for you know tremendously gifted athletes, yeah. uh, it's, it, it's a testament that... Really, you can kind of get anything done in life if you're willing to to put in the work. Okay, let's get into the the game of football itself because uh, in recent years there's been a lot of concern about concussions and the problems that concussions can cause later in life. Uh, I know you're not an expert, but how do you address that issue? Well, I think concussions are obviously a real thing. Anyone that, that thinks they're not is, is, is kind of... Um, delusional but i think pointing the finger at football being this uh one place where you know it's it's guaranteed to happen or this is the, this, this is the sport where you're going to get a concussion is is just it's it's wrong it's it's proven not to be correct uh you know i don't know all the stats and i'm not the expert but concussions happen to everybody all the time uh everything everything you do has a risk of, of falling and, and hitting your head uh, the nice thing that has happened because of this that i can say Having the attention on a football first 
has has forced football to to really address the issue. Mm-hmm. And I would say uh, the sport has never been safer. And I would also be very confident saying they are leading the way in player safety of any team sport, particularly any contact team sport or any sport where the player has contact with the ground or surface or other players. No sport has more safety protocols now than football. So if you're a parent and, and you're concerned at all, you look at the sport of football saying, they are doing more than any other sport to ensure the safety of my child while they're playing. That, to me, is far more comforting than a sport that's just avoiding it right now because the spotlight is on football. Mm-hmm. And, and, and as we are seeing stats creep up, concussions happen everywhere. They happen yeah, in they all happen sports. In hockey, they happen in women's soccer. They happen in mm-hmm. all the places where the, the media hasn't gone yet, so parents think, well, we'll put them here and we'll be safe. That's not true. So the question isn't, Uh, Where can I avoid my child getting a concussion? The question, which sports are doing the most they possibly can to to ensure the safety of our youth? And I can feel feel very confident that football is leading the charge. And and it's probably and it's because they got the finger pointed them first. But you know what? Good things happen when a crisis occurs, when good people care. And that's happened with the sport of football. So it has never been safer. Is there more work? Sure, there's always more work, but I think you can really feel good about what the sport has done to uh, do everything possible to ensure player safety. Tell me about, uh, you mentioned in your uh, TED Talk, uh, a young man who is uh, a player in uh, New Westminster, uh, and you talk about his his story and how the game of, of football, and just what you've written about in your book, uh, has taken him from... Uh, what could have been a very bad situation into something completely different. Yeah, and that, again, is is my big thing for football. Any sport or, or any activity has the, the power to uh, shape someone's life positively and, and hopefully redirect them away from bad choices and give them structure and guidance and challenge them and force them to grow. But as I said in the talk, football gives the most opportunities. It doesn't turn anybody away because of uh, finances or athletic ability. So anyone can... can can get these benefits. Uh, the beautiful thing about football is it's tough. Mm-hmm. Life is tough. So it's preparing you accordingly. It, it's not some uh, a false reality that's fun while you're doing it. It's a difficult sport that requires dedicated, disciplined approach, which is we can agree success in life requires that too. It also is, is, is the one sport that you can't do things on your own. You have to bring something to the table that's uh, that's a part of something bigger than yourself. Right. That again, I, I believe is is what life is about. Whether it's your family, your friends, or your business, you understand your role is how can I bring the most I can bring to what's required of me to make something bigger than me great. Football. There's no sport that that has more pieces of a bigger puzzle than that. Uh, so you know, it, it it gives people an opportunity to learn things that actually transfer really transfer uh, to, to real life, which is that commitment to the, to the daily disciplines of what's required of you, the understanding that uh, you're bringing something to the table that's part of something bigger than who you are, and you are, uh, you're needed every day. You, know, you have your role to play, and they're relying on you to, to do that every single day. And for a 15-, 16-year-old, that is a tremendous lesson to learn that, 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 that carries forth in life, and you become someone that I'd want to hire, I'd want around me. I'd want to work with. I'd want in my life because you know how to show up every day and and do what's needed of you without the need for the ego-driven attention. You're just doing it because that's what what the job requires. 
I know that you've had many, many coaches and, and, and mentors and people have helped you out. Are there two or three that, that stick with you? Yeah, well, I mean, my my book is is a story of my direct relationship with Coach Dan Dorazio, who I had for 11 years with the BC Lions. He was my positional coach. And obviously, it's a bigger story of all coaches, but I had the unique situation to have the same coach for 11 years. I don't yeah. know too many people that can say that anywhere. Yes. You know, I've worked with the same person for 11 years. So he... He left me with with more learning than I'd ever learned from anybody else. And what was really fascinating was this is at the professional level where, you know, it's it's do your job or go home. But yet still, he he understood the the impact a coach can have on a player and was wise enough to always utilize that outlet to teach life even at a professional level where everything was an opportunity for me to learn something that I can take with me after the game is done. And whether that's how to communicate, how to stay calm under pressure, Mm -hmm. how to deal with adversity, how to build rules to make decisions in, in, you know, in high pressure situations with time constraints, how to focus on the details of the task, all these things that the sport, you know, you need to be successful in the sport, but you need to realize as a coach, as a teacher, if you're not teaching it in a way that they can take something with them afterwards, what a wasted opportunity. You know, sure, you want to win games and win championships, but you have an opportunity to impact people's lives and instill things with them that they will use in their marriage, in their business, in their friendships forever. And that, to me, is the real power of sports. And if we're not doing that, we are wasting that golden opportunity and we are not utilizing what we, what we say the great value of sports is teaching life. Well, are you actually teaching life? And my coach, uh, so many have done it, but this book is the specific story of my 11 years with Coach Dan and all the real lessons I learned while he taught me how to play this sport. Where can people pick up your book? Uh, Amazon.ca is the easiest in Canada to get a hold of it. Uh, you know, obviously, I have it when I'm, when I'm at my speaking events and, and, and whatnot. Angus, Angus Reed 64 is my website. You, know, you can contact me directly for uh, team sales or group sales, but Amazon's the best place. The book is Thank You, Coach, Learning How to Live by Being Taught How to Play. Angus Reed, thanks for coming in. No, thanks, John. Always good to see you. This is Why is produced by John O'Dowd and me, Nikki Reitmeyer. It's a national radio show and a podcast. Download and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you download your favorite podcasts from. Give us a rating and a review. Tell your friends about the show as well. We're on Twitter at This Is Why, or you can always reach us by email, This Is Why at CuriousCast.ca. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.